0: And here the close of this Lord's day, in fact, as John made mention of that thought in Revelation 1, verses 9 and 10, it was on the Lord's day that he was especially privileged to himself witness and see so many beautiful things that we observed already in chapter 1 of this book. To our visitors tonight and to our membership here at Pippin alike, how excited we are to welcome each and every one for an opportunity of encouraging one another in song as well as praising God most especially, but also to look into his word, to be challenged and encouraged thereby, and with the edification and goal of perhaps tomorrow being a better individual in service to him than maybe we've been today. We have been in the on Sunday evenings looking into the book of Revelation for the last Three weeks, I suppose, we were not able to be with you last week, of course, due to the meeting at Union Hill, but two weeks ago, we had had our second lesson dealing with this majestic and grand last book in the Bible, and on that occasion, we came to realize in chapter 1, of the blessed character of the one revealing the messages in this book. Would it not be fair to say, just by way of a brief remembrance, of the following set of ideas? In those previous lessons, we first learned some of the basic ideas as to why this book has given a degree of difficulty for those desirous of correctly interpreting it. And then again, as we look more intently at chapter 1, might we remember the blessing pronounced upon those who read it, those who in fact listen, as well as those who put into practice the things contained therein, Revelation 1 verse 3. With that said might I submit to you that this evening we'll begin a study in chapter 2. And if all goes well, and there should be no reason that it shouldn't, we will in fact look clearly at some of the special letters that our Savior sent to seven congregations existing roughly 2,000 years ago. But as we do so, might we implant in our mind the very stern and clear thought that though those congregations were seven churches in Asia... The Holy Spirit, by virtue of the beauty, beautiful nature of God's revelation, selected them for appropriate messages that would benefit all mankind for all ages. Just because the letters to Ephesus and Smyrna and Thyatira and the others listed, just because those congregations existed so long in the past, that does not mean those messages are not as relevant and as needed for us yet today. In fact, as we study them in turn, we'll be reminded again and again how desperately we need the same messages. It would be fair to note at the outset that some of these letters, in fact, have much in common. And may I submit that that will be the first element of our lesson this evening. Let us observe some ideas that are present in each and every one of these seven letters. For it perhaps goes without saying that if Jesus included these elements in every single letter back then, those had to be very critical and important matters to Him, and thus it would seem to imply that He would directly desire those same elements today. As you look through those seven letters with me, all seven of them follow the same pattern. They first begin, being rather brief they are, but nonetheless, they begin with a salutation. And following that is a word of commendation. And you'll notice that I have critically placed in following the word commendation a question mark. I did that for a very good reason. Of the seven congregations here addressed, it's rather interesting to notice that almost all of them were commended. There was one out of the seven of which the Lord had nothing good to say. There's no commendation to that one. Notice following that is a word, if you will, of reproof. That means he made note of something that was inadequate or something that was an error and encouraged or reproved them for that particular error. And again, I've placed, following that, a quotation or rather a question mark. Of the seven congregations, two of them had no reproof. That is, the Lord did not particularly correct them for any errors contained in their, in their body. And I've listed those two are Smyrna and Philadelphia. And then following the reproof is a general exhortation. And finally, following that, a promise of reward to those who overcome and to those who apply the lesson that's been applied. Thus, having made note of that fact, We will interestingly ask ourselves the question as we move through these, what lessons then is being delivered for me, for us as the Pippin Church of Christ, that we may be strengthened and gleaned from those as we study them? But in addition to that, note the other common idea about that salutation. All seven of them clearly identify that the one revealing the message, the one sending greetings to the congregation, is none other than Jesus. It's not John. It's not an angel. It is identified absolutely in every case to be Jesus. And we'll see that also this evening as we move through and consider three of these letters. That idea, namely that it's a personal letter from Jesus to each one of these congregations, perhaps rests in our mind a beautiful and rather challenging thought. What if our Lord wrote to the Pippin Church of Christ a personal letter today? What would he have in it? For what would he commend us? For what would he reprove us? What general exhortation would he provide? Place yourself then with me tonight in the very place of three of these seven congregations and notice that if, say, one of our elders were to rise on a Sunday morning and read a letter specifically addressed from the Savior to the church, it would be a rather ear-opening exercise, wouldn't you agree? And yet, in the ancient era, some 2,000 years ago, these congregations were in exactly that circumstance. As you and I ponder then these lessons, they're not minor matters. We should take great heed to the things revealed and apply them at great sacrifice, if necessary, to our life at Pippin. Which directly brings me to the next observation. All seven letters contain the exact same four words, I know thy works. All seven of them have verbatim those words. Jesus knew very well not only the church, but the circumstances in which they were existing, the difficulties that they faced, the important matters that were resting upon their minds and in that area. He knew everything. Thus, might we not learn today, He knows everything, not only about our congregation here, but about my life and yours individually. There is no concealing matters from Him. There is no such thing as hiding anything from Him. The eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good, to quote Proverbs 15.3. These churches should then have known that regardless the circumstances in which they were, Jesus Christ knew all about it. But that brings us to the last common point. It's also true that to every single congregation... There are these words, and they were a portion of what was read by Jason in our hearing just a moment ago. If we read the one from verse 11, this was specifically written to the church in Smyrna. It says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To every single congregation, he closed it specifically by saying, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Reminding us yet one more time the fact that to hear these matters and make dutiful application of them was a vital matter, so much so that all who, in fact, could be said to have ear and have a degree of understanding, knowledge, and wisdom should make haste to make application of these things delivered by the Spirit to the seven churches of Asia. With those common matters identified, we will now spend some opportune time this evening looking, beginning in order with the first one addressed, in the second chapter of Revelation. This happens to be the church in Ephesus. As we consider this church in Ephesus, might we begin by noting the following. Let us read chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and set the stage for our discussion of this matter to the church in Ephesus. Unto the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, and who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick from out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitanes, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. That letter, as you and I have just read, it was again addressed to this church in the ancient city of Ephesus. And as we made mention on the very first lesson in this series, we might well be greatly benefited by recalling the specific circumstances in which these cities existed, for these letters then may take on an added import or meaning to, to you and me. I've listed a very few brief facts about the ancient city of Ephesus, From a study of the New Testament, we've often encountered that city before, but these are some of the highlights that might be worthy of our study. The city of Ephesus was one of the major cities in all of the ancient Roman Empire. In fact, it stood perhaps second only to such major places as Rome itself. It was sufficiently major, if you will, that it was a center for banking, for commerce, for various governmental matters, as well as religion. I make statements of that order for the following reason. It is that last one that will bring to you and me an added depth as we study this letter. We learn in Acts chapter 19 that it's in this city of Ephesus. It was the center of the ancient worship of the goddess Diana. Now, she's also known as Artemis, and that temple that was located in in Ephesus was the temple to Artemis. You might remember that, in fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a majestic temple. People from all over Asia Minor would come to Ephesus to pay their respects, if you will, or engage in the worship to the goddess Diana. In fact, the city of Rome, the actual capital of the entire empire, awarded the city of Ephesus the right to be those that would hold what I called a provincial provincial imperial temple. That simply means that they were granted, that is the city of Ephesus, the right to build as well as maintain a temple, and the sole purpose and sole reason of that temple was to engage in the worship of the Roman emperor. It was a base for imperial worship. And quite often that would form the backdrop then for many of the individuals to be found in that city. There would be various statues and busts, if you will, of the Roman emperor. <clears throat> Excuse me. And individuals would be expected to bow before those busts or statues before they could engage in the activities that were to be taking place on that occasion. It was a rather interesting and also tragic set of decisions. A person who is a Christian could not, in all understanding of the need to worship God and Him alone, Matthew 14, bow before this statue of the Roman Emperor. And yet, they may, that may very well be what was required to enter into the marketplace or the other specific activity and even participate therein. And thus, those Christians were in a very difficult situation on many, many occasions. To note that brief historical encounter, Perhaps we at this point could begin in verse 1. The salutation directly addresses Jesus. For notice, the one addressing the letter is the one holding the seven stars in his right hand, and the one holding, in the, or one who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. That's exactly what we just read in chapter 1 two weeks ago. There, as John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard behind him a tremendous voice as of the sound of the, a trumpet, As he turned to see who it was addressing him and speaking, he saw one holding in his right hand seven stars. He also saw that same one walking in the midst of his churches. That's exactly the reference identified here. It is Jesus delivering this message. It's not the opinion of John. It's not the opinion of any other person. This is the word of heaven itself through the blessed Son of God. But isn't it amazing... After making note who it was addressing this, we next immediately note the commendation. That is to say, the compliment Jesus paid to the church in Ephesus. He began by saying, I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. The Lord did pay Ephesus a powerful compliment. In knowing their works, he appreciated very well their perseverance, their endurance, their holding fast to the doctrine of truth and not forsaking it. Their perseverance and endurance were to be duly noted. And in fact, I've listed two especial examples. They were even complimented for identifying those who claimed to be apostles but really were false. We must appreciate these and Ephesus apparently knew their scriptures for they could in fact judge by them whether an individual was a true or correct person proclaiming the truth of heaven. In particular, in verse 6, the false doctrine of the Nicolaitanes is mentioned. That's one of those groups that we sometimes struggle a bit with. The New Testament mentions them on a couple of occasions, but nowhere do we find enough information to pin down precisely what the false doctrine of this group was. In fact, later in this same chapter, verses 14 and following, it would appear that the error taught by the Nicolaitans was this, that they taught that a person, in fact, as a physical being was rather distinct from the spirit inside, to the point that a person could participate in various activities which were sinful, but yet the spirit would not participate therein and would not be defiled thereby. Now we understand that there's no truth in that doctrine in the New Testament. We're told in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20 that we are bought with a price and that our body and our spirit are God's. One thus can't claim to engage in some sinful activity, but yet the spirited side to still be undefiled. But yet that appears to be what the Nicolaitanes taught. As such, we notice at verse 6 that these in Ephesus appreciated that error and did not support it. To note then the error of that compliment, the nature of that compliment, much could be said about how terrific these Ephesians had been in defense of the truth. However, verse 4 does introduce a reproof. What was it that was lacking about the church in Ephesus? Verse 4 says, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. And immediately, though they had been lifted to the heights of complimentary nature, they now are told that there's something amiss, there's something that isn't appropriate, there's something that's insufficient and inadequate. You've left your first love, Ephesus. What does that mean? One might be tempted to think that means they'd apostatized from the truth. They no longer were walking in the pathways of proper and correct doctrine. But in light of what we've just studied, that seems terribly unlikely. For if they had identified the falseness of the the Nicolaitanes and been able to try those that claimed to be apostles and found them false, it would appear that these were rather knowledgeable of Scripture's. To the point where that does not seem a likely answer to this at all. What is the answer apparently? Maybe verses 4 and 5 give us that hint that we need. To have left their first love seems to strongly suggest that that which was mentioned was the fact that brotherly love was missing. They knew the text, they knew the scriptures, and they were able to defend them to those that opposed them. But it seems in the church at Ephesus that the zeal of brotherly love was no longer present. They may have assembled as they were commanded to do so, but the fire of concern and compassion one for another was simply not there. They had lost that first element of zeal, that character and consideration of brotherly love one for another. There's a rather remarkable lesson in that for us, isn't it? All throughout the sacred New Testament, we are urged to rec- recollect the importance of brotherly love, aren't we? Jesus said in John thirteen thirty four and five that by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Even the disciples, those apostles, gathered on that occasion, were told very directly by the Savior himself: "This is the litmus test by which others will know of your dedication not only to me." but by virtue of that, your love one for another. Many other passages might well be listed in that fashion, in that vein. For your consideration, I have pointed out just a few others. In Second Peter 1, verses 5 through 7, we remember the Christian graces and the listing thereof that's presented. Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and a brotherly kindness charity. Might I ask you to reflect on the second to the last one. The King James renders that brotherly kindness. The actual Greek meaning is love of the brethren. We, as those who were washed in the blood of Christ, should appreciate that as brothers and sisters we are to love each other and have a disposition of concern and caring for one another. It's a beautiful thing to behold that in a congregation, isn't it? And what a lesson for us to encourage here even at Pippin, to even strengthen the tie that binds between us as we appreciate the brotherly love that is to exist. In Second John verse 5, that new commandment that John said really wasn't new, that he wrote to that elect lady was to love one another. Oh, the love that then should dwell within the minds, the hearts of those who are acclaimed of God and appreciative of Him. That's the very thing that in Ephesus was lacking. But might we also notice that as the Lord made that observation, He quickly also pointed out to them the fact of an exhortation. What were they to do in light of that deficiency? Verse 5 Remember. Verse 5 Repent. Verse 5 Do. They were to recollect that former state of blessing that they enjoyed, to repent of their current state of error and to proceed to do again those works of which the God of heaven is pleased. And to that point, notice that verses 5 and following thus close this letter to the church at Ephesus, but making note of the grand promise that would be theirs if they did proceed to follow that word of exhortation. Perhaps verse 7 sums it up best. To him that overcometh will I give, to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God to eat of the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. That's another one of those Old Testament references. As we began this series of studies, we remember from that series that the Old Testament is often referred to. In fact, in one of the opening stories in all the Bible, in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, Adam and Eve once were able to partake of the physical tree of life, but due to their sin, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden and were thus no longer given any access to that tree. However, to this congregation, the church at Ephesus, he said, if you will remember and do these words of exhortation, you will again be able to eat of the tree of life, but it's not a literal tree on earth. Where is it? The Lord said it's in the paradise of God. Thus, he was speaking about the beautiful and grand subject with which you'll close this book in chapter 22, heaven itself and the paradise of God with its tree of life located therein. But what about the next church that's addressed? We have thus briefly looked at the church in Ephesus. Let us read verses 8 through 11 and look at the church in Smyrna and appreciate the somewhat briefer letter written to this congregation. And under the angel of the church in Smyrna write, "'These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive, "'I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich.'" And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death." and thus to the church at Smyrna. As we have read that, let us follow the same set of ideas that we did before, making a brief note of some historical aspects of that ancient city, and from that, then to notice more carefully these this pattern of doctrine delivered to them by Jesus himself. First, what about Smyrna? As we looked on our map a couple of weeks ago, we remember it was situated about 35 miles north of Ephesus, and thus... In terms of distance, it was certainly a considerable but not an impossible matter in which to travel. But Smyrna was a rather different town than was the city of Ephesus. In fact, by looking at the various writings of others, it would seem that the city of Smyrna was a very beautiful city. That seems to be one of the factors always listed as an ancient description of the city of Smyrna. Beautiful. Streets were colonnaded with very beautiful types of marble buildings, And it was an impressive thing to behold. It was situated, in fact, very near to a a small body of water that led right into what would be the Mediterranean Sea. The city itself was perched on a hill, so as one would sail up to it, one couldn't help but see the beauty of the various buildings and structures. And it was an impressive thing to behold. But in regard to this city of Smyrna, might we notice that it, too, was a place where there was an imperial temple As I mentioned earlier, that was a place where there was the worship of the Roman Caesar. Now, the temple in Ephesus came along a bit earlier than did the temple in Smyrna. In fact, it would not be until the time of Hadrian that this temple would ultimately be finalized in the city here of Smyrna. But might we take note? Hadrian began his rule only about 20 years from the time this book was written. May that then, as we'll see in a moment, help us to appreciate one of the statements that John, that is, the Lord through John, made to this congregation. With a brief note about that history, let's appreciate then the salutation. These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. That again is a direct reference to Revelation 1.18, where there Jesus expressly said that, I was alive and then dead and then alive forevermore. And in this letter to the church at Smyrna, he made note of that same fact, reminding them that given the difficulty they're about to face, if death were to be the lot of faithfulness, they should ever remember that he had given his life for them. But he was now alive forevermore, and so too would they be if they remained true and loyal and faithful to his cause. Notice then, following that, we have the commendation given to this church. Verse number 9. I know thy tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. This church was highly praised for enduring difficult tribulation and terrible persecution and great affliction. And as they had endured all of that, might we notice carefully again in verse number 9 that a part of that included the recognition of the blasphemy of some in the area who said they were Jews, but who were not. Isn't it amazing to note the description? These are called the synagogue of Satan. The synagogue, as we studied a little earlier in our series of lessons on the various importances of that structure, it was an amazing structure for the purpose of carrying out proper worship to God under that regime of the old law after the temple was destroyed. And here that very edifice is called a synagogue of Satan, those who have forsaken the way of rightness, and as such they are not pleasing in the sight of God. Verse 10, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Future tense verb. It would seem that the suffering that Jesus had in mind would be that suffering they would endure under the leadership of Hadrian. That Roman emperor that ultimately would put that imperial temple in that city and greatly increase the persecution and affliction which they would endure. Perhaps these statements then lead us to appreciate even better the fact that the devil shall cast some of you into prison. Hard days are ahead for the church in Smyrna. However, in the terms of them being tried, he said it would last ten days. That again is not a literal ten days. That's another one of those references to a protracted period of time, but the fact it's called 10 means that it's not going to last for an extremely long period of time. It's going to last for certainly a considerable length, but you need to be faithful. Be thou faithful until death, and I will give thee a crown of life. That does bring us then to the following observation. Noting the commendation is there, there is no reproof. The Lord had nothing to reprove the church in Smyrna of. That is a rather gigantic compliment to them, isn't it? Would would that be the case if he wrote to the Pippin congregation today? Would he only have complimentary things to say to us? Or would he need to rebuke us or reprove us for one or more things that we could be doing better? We can only hope that it would be the former. But as we notice here, no reproof for the church in Smyrna. He did notice finally, though, an encouragement to their faithfulness. In light of the fact that this persecution is going to increase, the difficulties are going to get worse. Some of you are going to be even cast into prison. But he noted, you be faithful unto death. That meant even if it cost you your life, you be faithful to the Master, I will give you the crown of life. That crown of life mentioned so often challenges all of us to appreciate that we too must remain faithful, no matter what the obstacle, no matter what the difficulty. All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3.12. And aren't we told that those who in fact suffer for the cause of Christ are blessed? Matthew 5, verses 10 and 11 We might well remark, then, that the encouragement to faithfulness is appropriate any time and always. It's as needful today as it was then, and it'll be as needful tomorrow even as it is today. To this church in Smyrna, then, how often have you and I been comforted by that assurance, you be faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Isn't it majestic to consider what God did not say in that text? He did state that faithfulness is needed. Shouldn't all of us be so thankful? He did not say, be thou wealthy. Be thou wise, worldly. Be thou, in fact, popular. For if that's what he had demanded, we'd have a hard time, at least some of us. For you see, we may not be wealthy by the standards of the world. We may not be popular by the standards of the world, but that's not required. He said, you be faithful. And that's something all of us can do. Isn't it amazing that though they may have felt perhaps they weren't as rich as they'd like, he did note in verse 9, but you are rich. Oh, how rich we are as Christians to ponder the blessings we enjoy in Jesus. And having noted that, that draws to a close this letter to the church in Smyrna. And that brings us to verse 12, this letter to the church in Pergamum. As before, let's read beginning in verse 13. And we will read through verse number Seventeen, as we study about this congregation, and then we'll return make some comments about it as well. Revelation two, verse thirteen, or rather verse twelve. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write: These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with the two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas my, was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitanes, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. We thus have come to the third of the congregation's addressed in this second chapter of the book of Revelation, the church at Pergamos. Historically, we might notice a few quick comments about this congregation as well. Unlike the two previous cities we've listed, Pergamum was located some distance inland, in fact, some 50 miles north of Smyrna. It was a city which, in fact, had one of the most famous and notable libraries of the ancient world. In fact, it perhaps ranked only second to the great library in Alexandria, Egypt. Notice also that this city was known for its healing complexes. People could come there and they could pursue healing at various structures or buildings wherein doctors or others trained in that area would offer medicinal healing for the various ailments of the day. And yet one more time, might we notice that Pergamum was the place where there was an imperial temple. Another one of these temples wherein there was the worship to the Roman emperor. And it was by and large expected or demanded that those in the region or area would take part in the activities of that location. In fact, the imperial temple for this city was built much earlier than it was for either of the two previous ones. That may explain a bit about verse 13 that we'll see in just a moment. Having noted that brief introduction... Let us notice that to this city again, there's a salutation that directly addresses Jesus and identifies him as the one writing. Verse 12, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. And immediately our mind races back to Revelation 1 verse 16, for there in that vision or that matter that John saw, the one whom he had seen earlier that was clothed in such impressive array had a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. We noted that that one speaking then was Jesus, and here's the same one again, writing to the church in Pergamum. At this point, it might be interesting to note that the wording that I've used may be a bit confusing. The King James reads this city's name as Pergamus, and on several occasions I've pronounced it Pergamum. In fact, most all other translations of which I'm aware will call it Pergamum, and based on historical evidence, it seems that's actually more likely the ancient name to this city. Thus, I'll try to simply continue to call it Pergamum, but let us notice in the addressing to this city. It's rather interesting that they were commended. Verse 13, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. That word seat literally means throne. Pergamum was an ancient city where in a real way Jesus could say Satan's throne is located there. Perhaps a strong hint of the long-standing nature of that imperial temple. It was a long-standing understanding that those present were expected to worship the Roman emperor and they were thus under an even greater matter of difficulty than even those who were, say, in the city of Smyrna we studied a moment ago. For their imperial temple wasn't fruition, didn't come to that for yet several years to, to, that, was, that was in fact to pass. But here, this temple already there. Satan's seed is located there, Jesus himself said. But he did note to them that they held fast his name. To this congregation, he had a word of compliment. They had held fast the character of truth in God, at least in many respects. In fact, even a gentleman named Antipas was put to death for the cause of Christ in this ancient city of Pergamum. It's to be noted that Stephen was a martyr back in Acts 7, and now we read about a gentleman named Antipas who was put to death because he of his faith in Jesus. To make note of those compliments, however, we must not overlook the reproof. There was something not completely correct in the eyes of heaven in regard to this congregation. What was it? Verse 14, I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Another one of those references to the Old Testament. Balaam, back in the book of Numbers, chapters 21 to 25, was an ancient individual, a prophet, if you will, who was asked by Balak to curse the children of Israel. When Balaam, in fact, ultimately made petition to God as to whether or not he could do that, it was ultimately that occasion which his donkey spoke, the donkey, talking donkey, if you will. And ultimately, he was reproved. But might we remember, what did he teach and what did he prophesy of? By and large, it wasn't good. In fact, in this chapter, chapter 2, verse 14, "...to eat things sacrificed into idols and to commit fornication." As I briefly make note on the screen in Numbers 31.16, it was there said of Balaam that he taught Israel to commit fornication and to offer things to idols. That very same reference then appears here in respect to someone in Pergamum who was in fact teaching the character of fornication and the fact that it was okay and even that they should participate in the worship to these idols and all the while they would not be defiled thereby. Jesus said that isn't so. You are defiled by doing those things. And in verse 15, it's also true the Nicolaitan doctrine was present in Pergamum. And there were some in this congregation who followed it. Jesus said he hated that doctrine. May we note that anything opposed to the truth of heaven is to be repulsed and hated even by you and me today. To note those particular matters relating to the reproof. Let us notice the exhortation given to this church. Near the end of verse 17, they were told to repent. If they did not, he expressly notes that he would come and fight against them with a sword of his mouth. There is no hope of overcoming Christ. You and I in battle against him are certain to be defeated. Here they were told, you repent or else you will certainly be crushed and defeated by the great power of God through the Christ. And that leads us to the closing recognition in verse 17. If they would overcome, that key word in the whole book, if they would overcome, they were expressly told they would be given to eat of the hidden manna. Another one of those references to the Old Testament. It was the children of Israel who ate manna during their years of wilderness wandering, and God provided it miraculously, if you will, six days every week. Here we notice the church in Pergamum, you will be blessed to be eat of the great promise of the gift of God spiritually forevermore by his provision if you will overcome. Furthermore, they would be able to have a stone in which a new name would be written, and this stone would be white, a symbol of purity, a symbol of power, a symbol of association with all that is holy and righteous and appropriate. And that new name of which he spoke, a name written for those saved evermore in heaven, And isn't that a name we'd all like to wear? To be able to be given entrance through the pearly gates of heaven, if you will. And many times when we come to chapter 21, we'll see that reference yet again. Oh, what an encouragement it must have been to them to think about eating of that hidden manna. That manna that maybe some on earth are not able to appreciate fully now. But oh, how we each can desire to appreciate it fully forevermore. As we come to the closing part then of that letter, that letter to the church on this occasion in Pergamum, might we conclude with some final thoughts tonight. What a great blessing it is to have these seven letters to the churches in Asia to appreciate that their difficulties and their problems can serve as types of those same issues which you and I will face today. And thus, by noting what Jesus said to them we can be that much more prepared to offset or face the difficulties that we will be asked and called upon to do. As we've seen, these letters are from Jesus himself. That lends great significance and importance to them. And we are admonished, if we have ears to hear, to hear fully and completely that which is said, for Christ knows our works. To that church in Ephesus, you've left your first love. You need to return to that as quickly as possible to that church in Smyrna. No reproof to them, but how they needed to be faithful even until the point of death. Finally, to the church in Pergamum, recognizing that though the circumstances there were difficult, Satan's seed is where you are. You nonetheless have some there that hold false doctrines. You need to repent, for it's only in that way that I'll give you that new name and the stone and the character of being either of that hidden manna. Today, the same promise is given to them are the promises we would greatly hope want to have for us too. Tonight, are you a Christian? Are you a person then who has had your sins washed away in the precious blood of the very Lamb of God? If you have never done that, that's the very matter that ultimately was at stake in all these letters. Will I remain faithful to God or will I serve man for the betterment of my physical body? You see, the spiritual is again more important. Have you then made yourself right with God? If you haven't, let tonight be the night that's done. Understand your need to hear the word of the Lord, to believe Jesus, to be the Son of God, to repent of the sins in your life, to confess His marvelous name as your Savior, as the Son of God, and to be immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If we could help you do that, we'd be happy to do so. If you have become a Christian, but perhaps like those in Ephesus, you've left your first love, perhaps to the Lord himself, or perhaps even to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, come back at once to that first love. Remember the zeal and the power and the association you enjoyed, the fellowship that was yours. If you need to come back to that first love tonight, we are told that we can pray one for another, and in so doing we can be healed, James 5.16. If we could assist you in that way tonight, it would again be our privilege. If either of these is the need of your life, hesitate no longer, but will you not come now while together we stand and while we sing?